It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. And we, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. moment, 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 moment. going on everyone welcome this is mic'd up i'm your host mika gadsden yeah just letting that rock a little bit this is mic'd up on um i'm mika gadsden and you're here with me on another fabulous friday if i sound a little down it's not because it's not a fabulous friday it's a great friday um just want to just start off by saying just this was a crazy busy week for me um and uh, i got a lot of show today i don't even know if i'm gonna break for music it's a lot of content um but let me just uh give you that information you need to hear at the top off rip this is 96.3 fm on radio your non-profit non-commercial radio station and we're broadcasting live from workshop which is here on 15 at 1503 king street inside of the own radio studio and um, thank you all for just joining me. I, I get so much feedback from week to week. Uh, new listeners, uh, new fans of either my commentary or not even just fans, people who just really want to get another perspective. I don't want to refer to them as fans, but people who are just really, they care about Charleston. They care about representation. They care about justice and, and equity. And um, I just want to say welcome to my new listeners and welcome to those who just really they really bang with me. <laughs> so um, this week, like I alluded to initially, has been very, very busy. So much so that I, I have to start getting more disciplined with my notes and, and my, my show prep. And, and I've done just that. So um, Monday, the week uh, started off for me personally, um, along with this this radio show that is also a, a podcast that you can find on um, on SoundCloud and on iTunes. Um I run the platform, the digital space, um, the Charleston Activist Network. And so I wear, I guess, many hats. Um, I, I create content, activist content for my platform. I also create content for other organizations, other people, um, even music artists. Um, and usually that, that content centers around or involves uh, a consciousness raising, consciousness raising. And what I've used, what I've now started to do is do more citizen journalist type work so basically i get out there and try to cover things from the perspective of a, a citizen journalist try to bring people news that they need to hear so on and so forth and um, part of that has has included uh, attending events where local or local and but more importantly the um the presidential those running for the presidential presidential nominee um nomination excuse me I've been tongue-tied all week. So this week was no different. Um, in town, we had a senator from New Jersey. Cory Booker was in town. Uh, on Monday, he made a stop at the ILA Hall. The ILA Hall is actually very close to where we are right now here on King Street. It's uh, on Morrison. And, yeah, so like so many other town halls that has that have gone on there, pre my previous town hall that I've attended recently was the Joe Biden Town Hall, which was on a weekend uh, following the first televised debate um and so this monday which was i'm so i'm turned around like trying to look at the calendar that's how turned around i am today's the ninth so monday was the fifth um so on that day um senator um marlon kempson hosted cory booker and it was pretty boilerplate uh it wasn't to the scale 
or size of the Biden town hall. Again, Biden's town hall was on a was on a weekend. Was on a Saturday, I believe, if not a Sunday. No, it was on a Sunday because he went to um he went to Brown in, uh Morris Brown Church. Uh, but yeah, it was on a Sunday, so people more people could attend. And plus, Biden is the front runner, so he drew a bigger crowd. Um, but Cory Booker came and it was a very it was a packed house. It was standing room only at, at some point. Um, but I did did not see the spillover room like they did with Biden's event, um, which was like an additional 100 people in the spillover room. But, yeah, it was a sizable event. And I'm from New Jersey originally. If you're tired of me saying that, sorry. <laughs> but I'm familiar. I say that to say I'm familiar with with Cory Booker. I'm somewhat familiar with his politics. I'm, I'm very familiar with how he came into office uh, and, um, you know, his ascension from mayor of New York, of Newark, New Jersey, to um, becoming a senator um, in New Jersey. So I'm, I'm very familiar with his, his path and have a lot of friends who are very familiar with his work. Um, and his, um, you know, he's a very skillful politician and uh, very effective politician at that. So, um, but my personal feelings or anything aside, it was really interesting to be in the room and hear a presidential um, nominee or rather an aspiring presidential Democratic nominee um, get in that room, a candidate for that for that um, for that position. Get in there and make his case, or, or plead their case to the um, the public at large about why they should vote and support him. So, um, of course, this was a very friendly crowd, uh, and a lot of folks just really want to learn more. What I liked about this town hall versus the previous town hall uh, with Biden was that they opened the floor up for more questions. Uh, and so you really got an understanding as to what the priorities were for for some of the constituents who were in that in the um, in the audience. Um, and however, I do think a couple of people uh, were encouraged to get to the mic. Um, that was made clear by um, the MC of the evening. Um, uh, mentioned someone's name before the question and answer started. So I I. I, again, I get in I get in trouble when I say that things were choreographed. There's always a level of coordination, not choreography necessarily, but there is definitely a level of coordination that goes on behind these town halls. The um, the host politicians, the home politicians who bring uh, the the no, the notable guest in, they they want to make sure that that things go smoothly and then they help make the event um, a positive one or make the event a successful one. So there were a couple of people who were encouraged, let's say that, encouraged to get to the mic. Again, the MC kind of tipped her hand when she mentioned someone by name before the question and answer period began. And it's not that's not a big deal. That's not a scandal at all. I'm just just trying to outline the facts. And but but aside from that, one or two those one or two people that I noticed were encouraged to get to the mic. Um, there were a number of really dope questions. There was a young dude. I did not catch his name. It was a young, a young uh, student. He looked like he was like eight or anywhere between eight and twelve, and um, he asked a question about um, the treatment of uh, those in in our our prisons. And I thought it was just a very thoughtful and compassionate question. But another question that caught my ear, um, definitely caught my attention, was a challenging question posed directly to uh, Senator Booker regarding um, his ties to Big Pharmaceutical, Big Big Pharma rather. Uh, and so that really piqued my interest because, again, uh, knowing uh, the senator being uh, well read on uh, his track record in, in New Jersey, if you don't know New Jersey and parts of um, the Philly metro area is a huge hub for pharmaceutical industries. And so they, they definitely have a big role in politics. Uh, the state of New Jersey is a hugely influential state. Um, it has a, a very, very vigorous 
um, democratic machine that runs things. And so it's not, I mean, I I've just grew up knowing uh, how big of a, a role in government big pharmaceutical uh, industries play. So uh, someone in the audience actually, you know, stood up and asked them, you know, to really justify taking the money from pharmaceutical packs. And this person came armed with some information from some fact-checking websites. And it was encouraging to hear that, not because I wanted someone to verbally joust with um, the senator. Not not exactly what I'd like to see, though. What I always like to see, I like to see diversity of opinion. I like to see uh, criti- critical thought be fostered. And I love seeing these, these, these politicians account for their track record, good, bad, or indifferent. I love to see them support. Um, just vigorously defend uh, their their actions, and that's what we saw. So, some people might think that I'm, I was looking for a moment where the senator would would be exposed. To the contrary, I wanted to hear him account for uh, his relationship with pharmaceutical companies. And was I satisfied with the answer? Whatever, I'm not even going to answer that. But but basically, the answer in itself um, is was pretty much falls in line with what we've heard along the campaign trail since he uh, launched his. Um, his uh, candidacy so it was just really dope and I do have sound I'm going to play that question the sound is a little wonky the room was was really loud so I had up the volume on my up the volume on my mobile mic and so the sound is not not too distorted but um, I toned it down a little bit before the show began to make sure that um, that you could at least hear the question from that um, from that the the uh, the audience member so I'll play that audio it's really brief it's under a minute um, that question and also, too, um, so being a member of the press, uh, alongside my friend Fernando, previous guest on Mic'd Up on Home here, um, we were able, we, they made Cory Booker available to the guest for an extended period of time. I, we actually left the uh, press gaggle a little early because the night ran a little long for us both. But we did stay for the majority of the um, the time that they made Senator Booker available to us. So I just want to say this too, make another distinction between the Biden camp and um, the Biden experience. Experience and the Booker experience in this town hall setting. Um, we understand too; those are two very different candidates facing um, very two very different um, set of challenges. And so, each campaign, uh, each team is going to have to make decisions based on a, a, a number of things. But I will say that the Booker team um, did definitely made made um, the senator very accessible. Um, even when he after facing that challenging question from that audience member, that young 17 uh, year old um, audience member, he actually uh, he actually sought him out because I ran to him to get some follow up questions, which you'll hear. But he actually his team actually sought him out to make sure he stayed behind so he can engage with him one on one, which I thought was dope. Um, whenever you face a challenge, you know, not running from it again, justifying your your stance on something or, or, or further explaining, giving more context to why you took a certain position on an issue. I thought that was really effective. I think that shows that he's a he's a extraordinarily gifted politician. Uh, and so that was that was really great to see. So that that gentleman, actually, the young question asker, his name was Charlie. Charlie was actually asked by the campaign to to wait until he finished um, taking selfies. If anyone's ever either seen any reporting or read any reporting on Cory Booker, you'll know that um, he takes every selfie like any request. He satisfies each request for a pic- a personal picture, which is a very effective campaign tool, um, very effective. And so we, the, the, the gentleman, Charlie, had to wait a significant, um, a significant length of time. But however, he sat down with them. He pulled them up. He sat with them on the, um, 
on the very stage that he addressed the crowd from. And he engaged with that young man. It looked like for over about over 10 minutes. So it was a lengthy time period. And I'd like to see that engagement again, regardless of what we all think of these candidates it's really good to see them come face to face and not make themselves so, you know, like untouchable. No, Cory Booker was, was very accessible. And that's one thing I could definitely um, say has been consistent from time from 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 the beginning of from the um, I guess, from the beginning of um, his campaign. I've seen that. I've seen it close up also at the convention. He had a, a very um, energetic uh, team that made him accessible that was very it felt like a pep rally was following him the night of not even the convention let's back it up to the fish fry the night of the fish fry he had a very energetic team there campaigning for him and and, and really just um making himself available you could you could reach out and touch cory booker and at least that's how it feels and that's how it seems so he did that at the ila hall on monday so after he spoke with charlie and, and kind of just probed charlie Moore and tried to get him to understand his stance on on big pharma he then um, his team then made him available for a little impromptu uh, press gaggle toward the, the back of the room. So we joined him there. Um, and and just to paint a picture, we're talking about um, news outlets from all over the country, of course, was here. We're, we're there, rather. Um, so you had your CNNs and you had your Associated Press. Uh, shout out Meg Kennard. Um, uh, shout out, you know, uh, ETV, I think, public radio, South Carolina Public Radio, definitely in the house. Um, so we saw a lot of local and um, and uh, national news outlets present. So made themselves available and answered questions and very comfortably answered a lot of questions. I was able to ask a question, which in that little eight-minute clip um, that I will play, you'll be able to maybe hear my question. I'm, I'm still, again, like I admitted last time with the Nina Turner uh, interview, I'm still working on uh, my interview uh, skills and I have to slow down. I talk incredibly fat, fast, and you'll even hear that in that minute clip with Charlie. I just, I was, it was so raucous, and I just wanted to get the question out, and you know, whatever. But I'm working on it. And I think I did a good job. Um, for those just tuning in, this is Miked Up on Ohm. I'm your host Mika Gadsden, and you're listening to 96.3 FM on Radio, your nonprofit, non-commercial radio station. And we're talking about we're kind of recapping my week, um, which just sounds really like selfish or like self-centered a little bit when I say I'm recapping my week. But as an activist and as someone who's covering uh, this uh, presidential campaign. Um, I just I'm always I'm just busy a lot. You know, some people text me, ask me, am I busy or or stuff like that. And um, I'm like, yeah, I'm always busy. But just, you know, just tell me what you need. Um, But this week was no different. So before I I play the audio from the um, the Booker Town Hall, I will also kind of just run down what else happened this week. So on Tuesday night, the local ACLU uh, held a vigil to commemorate the 54th anniversary of the the Voting Rights Act. Um, As as many of you may know, the Voting Rights Act was essentially gutted in 2012. um, And uh, it just was overwhelmingly disappointing for someone like me. Um, who studies the work, of course, of Septima Clark, um, Ella Baker, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, you just name it, just the the work and the, the strides that were made during the civil rights era to, to make sure, to ensure that African-Americans um, 
could vote, could participate in their own democracy. And um, so at the at the ACLU visual, I was asked to speak. And I and I did. And I'm not going to go into like all the stuff I say. If you if you know who I am, you pretty much know how consistent I keep it. Um, I always leverage the history, local history, to paint uh, to to illustrate a, a point about where we are today. But um, you know what? Shout out to Allie Titus as well, my friend who um helped who invited me to to, to speak. Allie's just doing amazing things as a new addition to the ACLU team. Um, uh, but but what uh what. I arrived at in when preparing for my remarks I arrived at a at a point or I what I essentially said was that this fight that we're currently in in terms of making sure that we create more access right that we ensure that uh, everyone every citizen is afforded electoral justice that they have free and fair access to voting into the polls and to registering even, um, and with that we remove as many barriers as possible. The barriers that are placed before poor people, uh, people of color, people uh, with different types of immigration status. These are the people that are often disenfranchised here in America um, and who are encouraged uh, or not encouraged to discourage rather discouraged from voting. And so I arrived at the conclusion that this is about sovereignty, right? This is this is about um, personhood. Um, w- when black folk were uh, dis- not just discouraged, but were savagely beaten, sometimes murdered, um, lynched for voting, um, you know, what they were fighting for was the right to be seen, the right to be recognized as a fully formed human, the right to citizenship. Because voting and participating in your de- democracy essentially is about citizenship. And when I look at what's going on, at the border, when I look at what's going on um, with the recent, uh, and, and and I almost didn't want to talk about this, but the the white nationalist terrorist attacks that are just popping up all over the country, um, you know, most notably seen at Charlottesville, but, you know, also most notably seen at um, a Mother Emanuel AME church here in Charleston. Um, what What that's about, when these men go after uh, specific populations like in El Paso, uh, again, like in Charleston, like in, in any other uh, neck of the uh, neck of the country, any other pocket of the country. What that is is about is a challenge to someone's sovereignty and um, even immigration, the, the how we look at who's allowed and I'm using air quotes, who's allowed to be here and to exist as a fully recognized citizen. That's all about citizen. It's about citizenship. The, the reason the fight is so vigorously the fight is so, um, let me stop using that word. The fight um, against immigrants is fueled largely, of course, we say racism, but if we look a little closer and think a little bit more critically about what it is, it's a fight to keep them from being, keep immigrants from being seen as recogn- uh, as citizens. Because if they, they participate in democracy, they probably are less likely to uphold some of the white nationalist views that we see espoused by even many of our elected officials. Um, so that's what this is about. This isn't about, you know, anything else but denying folk rights and denying them the ability to participate and ultimately changing the, the literal complexion of this country and the figurative complexion of this country and, and, and helping to just helping us to be a more richer and stronger nation. Um, and so essentially that's what this is about. And and I read from a letter from a black um, resident who had his land illegally seized by the city of Charleston. I read a letter at the ACLU event that basically 
and I know people probably struggle like why are you talking about housing discrimination at a at a at a voting rights event um and like I said and like the point I was trying to illustrate was this is about personhood this was about sovereignty and citizenship when folks can't live can't can't don't can't even don't even have the right to maintain their their homes that they built and they saved for when they are not afforded that when they're not afforded they were not given the right to exist um, as a human and be seen as an adult and be seen as a viable resource worth investment worth worth fostering worth love um, you know worth care you can't participate in your democracy and um, I, I really want people to understand that all oppression is linked. So denying people the right to vote, denying people electoral justice is linked to racism. Racism is linked to misogyny, um, you know, and, and so on and so forth. Any other type of oppressive system you can list, they're all connected. They don't work without one another. And it's important that we see that, that voting access and voting rights is inextricably linked to a myriad of other um, human rights and fights for human rights. So that's something I want other people to, to um to keep in mind as we head into um, this very, very active and amazingly exciting, at least for me, uh, election season, understand that this fight is not just about getting people registered and having them show up to vote the way you want. No. Um, as a former um, worker for the ele- uh, the election commission, uh, I worked at the I worked on election day at, at the polls for a presidential election and then for uh, a, a couple of other local elections. And one thing I loved doing, especially for the presidential, I loved working with every single voter. And specifically, I worked curbside. So that means that I brought out the, the we, we took the um, voting machines outdoors. Um, it was several of us. And we would just go meet people who couldn't get out of their car, given whatever f- physical limitation they may have. And so we would go curbside. And that means we, we had to engage with all kinds of voters. And um, we'd never pressed or selected, uh, we never made selections for folks, but we, of course, you couldn't avoid seeing how they voted because you had to hold the machine. And if they needed help, if they couldn't see because the screens are sometimes dim, um, we had to provide, you know, um, reasonable assistance. And so you, you would see who people will vote for just, just by, um, you know, hazard, as a hazard of the job. And what I was so proud of for me was that, I was so focused on making sure that people could make their selections without any interference, without any problem that I, at, you know, at a, at a, at a certain point in, in these weeks of, of providing this, this essential service and helping people, helping people vote, you know, you realize that I'm just happy that they're here to vote. I don't care if they didn't vote for the person I thought was the best person to vote, to, to vote for. I don't care how they voted for school board. I didn't care how they voted for city council. I didn't care how they voted for president. I cared that you were able to vote and participate and, Everyone was happy. They were happy, and they were very happy to get the I Voted sticker. I was so, it, it it sounds really, like, corny, but it was really dope to see people like, hey, I came to vote. It was that easy. I showed my ID. I, you know, I showed my voter registration card, and someone came out here and, and helped me vote, you know, and it was just an amazing feeling, and they loved getting that sticker. They loved participating in that. And so what I took away from that entire experience as tough as it was to work um, the absentee voting, um, the, I, I worked the absentee voting period, and I also worked on election day. It, it was tough, it was tough work. It was a huge turnout, right? It was high volume voting. But what I love seeing is just people just light up and want to vote. And what I took away from that experience was that everyone should feel that way. 
everyone should feel like, especially if you, and then when, when we had first time voters and we would all cheer, it, it, man, everyone should feel that way. Everyone who's here should feel like they did something that mattered. And, um, you know, that's why I fight so hard for voter access and voter justice. And sometimes I think we get we get wrapped around this axle of register, register, register. Even I did last year during the last election. I was so like, I got to get people registered. I got to get people registered. And I lost sight of, of, of something really fundamental, which was the work, the work that needs to be done to remove barriers to voting and to participating in our own democracy. So, like, I guess me reflecting on that time working curbside during the absentee voting period at um, Isaiah Church of Christ in North Charleston and then on Election Day on James Island, what I took from that from that, that experience, I'm glad I reflected on that this week because uh, I re- it really made me remember where my passion was, which was removing barriers, helping people who wouldn't no- who couldn't normally vote without help helping them you know participate and so um and that's i think that's that's something too that we saw with the stacy abrams election or or yeah well, with the election in georgia when she ran for governor she'd worked so hard to remove the barriers to vote right she she was fighting voter suppression something that again uh, alluding to you know the visual and the and the the reason for the visual with the aclu you know uh, the voting rights act removed so many barriers and made sure that local governments and federal governments were accountable or held accountable for any type of malfeasance or any type of like just just unsavory tactics to keep people from participating in in the voting process and so um you know voter suppression is real and has reemerged especially following the 2012 Supreme Court decision that again essentially gutted the Voting Rights Act and so what we start seeing in states even like South Carolina which does yay it has absentee voting which essentially is early voting and that's great right it makes it just it moves that barrier you don't have to schedule around work day you can send in your ballot via mail or you can show up at one of several precincts throughout the the county that's great, but what also happened was the I, the voter ID laws were enacted, and that created a barrier. And for those who don't know, you know, let me just give some some uh, station identification for those who don't know. My name is Mika Gadsden, and I'm going to tell you why it's important. You know who I am in a second, but this is mic'd up on OM, and uh, we're talking about this week in local civic engagement, this week in local politics. On 96.3 FM on radio, your nonprofit, non-commercial radio station broadcasting live from Workshop, which is located at 1503 King Street, right here in the heart of downtown Charleston. So as I said, you know, it's important to know who I am because, again, aside from if you ever listen to the show, you can just play a bingo game, right? I'm, I'm going to say that I'm from New Jersey. Um, I'm going to say my name a bunch. I'm going to say Gazden a lot. I'm going to talk about Gazden Creek probably every show. Saving Gazden Creek. Shout out Cyrus. Shout out Blake. Shout out everybody. Um, and I'm also going to um, talk about my daddy who's um, born and raised Wadmala Island. Um, and I bring him up again because my dad was born to a midwife, as was my mother in, in the New Bern, North Carolina area. But my dad was born to a midwife on Wadmala Island, like many of his um, his other family members and cousins and, of course, his siblings. And, you know, black people black people were not uh, uh, seen as citizens, so they could they didn't have hospitals to go to. So like with many oppressed people throughout the, the beginning of this country, you had to create your own health care systems and your own uh, governments, essentially. So being born to you had midwives were women who um, either were trained 
informally through the traditions of midwifery um, passed down, or they will they they may have been able to get to some sort of nursing school and, and get a, a formal more formal education for people of color for black people. But anyway, my my dad was born to a midwife, and the common practice was that the midwives would service pretty much the entire community. It could be one midwife or maybe two or three if you're lucky. Um, but and, and the midwives would um, have to not just help ma- ensure a, a safe and healthy um, childbirth, but they also were in charge of processing and documenting the birth. So with my dad, he was my grandmother, Elizabeth, um, who passed away way before I was born. Um, my dad, um, everyone who knows him now calls him Dan. And for years I never understood. And I actually did never ask him why. I just assumed it was a nickname. And and finally, last year, I asked my dad, I'm like, why do they call you Dan? Like, because if, if someone asked me who my father is, I would often say, oh, it's Benjamin Gaston, which is, you know, his name. And they wouldn't know who I was. And then when as soon as I say Dan, they were like, oh, we get it. We get it. And um, so um, so so what I found out was my grandmother wanted to name him Daniel, wanted to name my dad Daniel. But the midwife, as many of them were known to be, was very um, opinionated. She preferred the name Benjamin. (laughs) And so what she did was she actually, when my father was born, she just wrote on the birth certificate, Benjamin Gadsden. It it went went totally against my grandmother's wishes and named my dad. Like, just took that, like, nope, I'm going to name him. And it was just, it was so wild to know that story. I just learned that story last year. And I was like, what? Um, But midwives had a lot of power and a lot of um, authority. And so I guess they asserted it. We heard so much about uh, Maude Collin in in Pineville and in Berkeley County. Uh, she was, you know, the probably the most famous midwife, uh, if not in the southeast, uh, definitely in South Carolina. Um, she was known to be a, uh, let's just say, she was known to be a firecracker herself. So um, these midwives yielded a lot of really wielded a lot of power, um, and so that's how my dad got his name. But she, so you would document the birth of your midwife, and then you'd take, you'd wait for a few births. You'd wait. Uh, you know, maybe you get a good stack, you know, and then you would make that trek to the courthouse or whatever minis- uh, municipal uh, building or what have you um, to to document, to, to formally um, to file the paperwork so my dad could get a birth certificate. So, my, you know, my, my, my mother rather would get a birth certificate and we'll have that and bam, you're done. But for so many people living in the rural, rural South, some things would happen between the delivery and um, the documentation. Sometimes midwives passed away. Sometimes some midwives weren't as organized as others. So many different things could have happened, but um, and w- w- which would prevent the documentation of so many births of black folk living in these rural pockets. And also, remember, there's virtually no infrastructure. If you do study Ma Callan's work, you also know that she used to trek. Um, the car couldn't get to where she had to go to sometimes, so she had to wade through mud and walk on this photographs of her walking on like like uh, fallen trees and with a lantern in her hand in a medical bag um so there was literally no infrastructure in certain pockets so you can imagine what happened to paperwork or what could potentially happen to someone trying to document each birth or maybe the sheer um the sheer load of how many births you had you were responsible for maybe that was overwhelming I, I could only imagine um what these women, um, young women and, and, and nurses were up against. And so I say all that to say you need a birth certificate to get ID. 
for a long time, um, it was a lot of people who didn't have a formal birth certificate were able to secure an ID uh, here in South Carolina. But when those voter ID laws came in, into effect, um, a lot of folks didn't have the necessary documentation to get the ID. And the process is beyond difficult. It's beyond difficult. So let's say you're a 60-something-year-old woman and you've you've had an idea, you've had some sort of way to go and vote. You or rather I think what happened was when you registered to vote in this state, you just went and you registered. Now you need that ID to register and it's that extra barrier. And a lot of people saying, well, just get the ID. It's not that simple. It's just like when people say, oh, just come to the country the right way. It takes decades in some instances to become a citizen here, coming here the quote unquote right way. People almost think that um, people stay without documentation because they're just lazy or unmotivated. And it's not. There are certain barriers in place like not having um, official documentation. And for my father, he was born 1939. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt that if there were people right now in my family, in my extended family, who don't have a birth certificate born around that time, um, given, again, the lack of infrastructure. And so the voting ID laws that were enacted here in South Carolina did, did create a substantial barrier for so many people. So shout out to uh, also um, State Rep um, Gilda Cobb Hunter for being a very vocal um, advocate to fighting uh, the voter suppression here in the state. There's so many amazing women, specifically black women, who have led the charge on this because they have been personally impacted, personally impacted by, um, by the voter suppression or they've seen the stories. And, um, you know, we have saw this also in Texas. I was reading um, Carol Anderson's book, uh, One Person, No Vote. And on Carol Anderson's uh, book, she was uh, she told the story of a, a war veteran. And I want to get the, the war wrong, but it was a war veteran who always used his veteran ID from, I, I want to say, World War II. He was a black veteran. He always used that ID to go to the polls and vote. But because of the restrictive voter ID laws in Texas, he was unable to present that ID to vote with. And and he is um, and I'm I'm going to get the direct quote incorrect, but he essentially says something to the effect that um, I guess I'm not a citizen anymore. And th- and that broke my heart that someone who would serve our country so valiantly and for years, I mean, this person was probably in their 70s for years was able to participate in their own you know local elections but because of these restrictive ID laws because of the gutting of the civil rights act um, and voter suppression and gerrymandering and all these other tactics that that the gov- that that a lot of um, southern uh, conservative strongholds put in place and and also you know Democrats do do gerrymandering gerrymandering as well voter suppression not so much um, but yeah, um, it was unfortunate to hear the account of this this veteran who was denied the right to vote simply because he didn't have the right documentation and he couldn't get um, a birth certificate. There was an issue with that birth certificate. Again, be born into the rural South where you're not seen as a human, you're not seen as a, as a as a human. You could not go to a, a hospital receive care. You had to create your own infrastructure and you had to rely on midwives and and sometimes some people even relied on vet on, on veterinarians, which is even doubly sad um, for medical care. So so just imagine just having those barriers and not being able to vote. And so voter suppression is something we should put at the forefront. Um, not just registering folks to vote. We need to understand the complexities of access to voting and access to voter registration. We need to understand our privilege. A lot of us, especially um, our white um, our white uh, friends out there who are trying to help people register to vote, as if you get into these rural pockets, please understand that this issue is, com- is complex. This is not about black apathy. This is not about people being unmotivated or, or, or misinformed. That, that's, that's bull. That's not true. 
um, it, it, the, whatever you see at an absence of participation for any marginalized community, you bet, best believe that there's either a policy in place or a practice or even terror, even terror in place that had pre- that has prevented folks from um, participating in their in their de- in their democracy. So um, I'm actually right now pulling up an article, um, an article, or rather, um, let me see if I can spell name right do two things at once um real quick let me give some station identification this is mic'd up on ohm i'm your host mika gadsden and we're recapping the week that is i guess the week in politics the week in local charleston politics we went we went over everything from cory booker's uh town hall with marlon kimpson at the ila hall on monday on tuesday was the aclu uh of south carolina hosting a vigil to commemorate the 54th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. Um, And um, we're talking right now about everything voter rights, voter um, electoral justice, um, civic engagement. And, yeah, we're broadcasting live from the OM radio studios uh, here at 1503 King Street. And we're situated right inside of Workshop, the the food court here. So if you're ever inclined to grab a meal and, and see either myself or my my own my omies my, my other own either radio personalities or or guests feel free to come by and uh, you can find us here at 1503 king street in the own radio studios and so basically um there was a student i'm gonna i'm, I'm putting it in there for the registration a student a former student of clemson i believe is she a doctor now um you know what i'm gonna play her i'm gonna play her um her research so basically i came across this back in february i believe let me pause it i came across this um all the volumes down i came across this clip in about in february so uh jacoba williams uh assistant professor jacoba williams five-year research project in the historical lynchings and contemporary voting behavior of blacks so her research found that where there was significant history of lynchings that 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 history if impacted current day voting um, habits. So basically, there was a lot of white nationalist terror. This is not a new phenomenon. I know that term might be new to a lot of people, but basically uh, black folk were lynched and prevented from participating in the voting process um, due to, with the, um, they were prevented with the use of terror, lynchings, they were killed, some of them were shot, they were threatened. And so that fear of lynching, that fear of, of, of dying at the hands um, of a, a terrorist or a member of the KKK or white nationalist or quite honestly your your local judge. Sometimes these judges would be at lynchings. Sometimes, um, you know, local lawmakers would be at these lynchings. I'm going to play her clip. It's on YouTube, uh, Clemson University College of Business. And I'm going to let Jacova uh, speak for herself. Let me turn the volume up on, uh, turn the volume up on this and I'm going to hit play on this. Hopefully it's loud enough. I'll adjust the volume if it's not. My research examines the extent to which historical racial animus continues to influence the voting behavior of Blacks. In particular, I use historical lynchings to proxy historical racial animus. And what I find is that Blacks who currently reside in counties that were exposed to a relatively higher number of lynchings, they are less likely to register to vote and are less likely to indicate that they voted in a recent election compared to their white counterparts. Given the importance of voting, findings from my lynching paper can actually be used to target areas that have been greatly impacted by these past racist acts. In particular, we can find areas that have high lynching rates 
and target air, um, these areas and get voting campaigns and things of that nature to try to eradicate these cultural attitudes that exist in the black community. So yeah, shout out to Jacoba. Um, I thought that was a compelling study. I, I just stumbled across that. I was I was researching voter suppression. And so she found these trends that existed that, you know, coincided with each other. So it, 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 again, this shows you the complexity of the voting uh, rights uh, issue here. And I, I get so I get so upset when people do not talk about voter suppression, but they love talking about voter registration. Like they are in, obsessed with it. It's and it, and that's what happened with me last election cycle. I just it was so saturated. I couldn't even like participate in helping people register because it was just such a saturated field. There were so many vehicles, and I was I was encouraged by that. I, I'm happy that there were so many people, factions, organizations out there working to register folks to vote. But but. I didn't see people really educating others on voter su uh, suppressive tactics on how to how to educate folks on how to remove those barriers, um, how to demonstrate compassion for those for, for certain pockets. And I always ask uh, a lot of political, a lot of presidential candidates. I've, I've spoken directly with Elizabeth Warren. I've spoken to um, Cory Booker. I've spoken with um uh, well, not Joe Biden about anything specific, but I always ask a question about voter suppression. Um, I ask a question about your rural, your rural so Southern strategy. And um, so I know that the Warren campaign, um, shout out to her team, Alicia and um, oh my God, I forgot, I forgot her name, but shout out to the, to, to the Elizabeth Warren South Carolina team for um, letting me know that there is a rural strategy to be rolled out if it's not already rolled out. Um, so I'm encouraged to hear that. And also too, you know, the whole time, the entire time during the uh, 2016 presidential race and I granted it was un, it was a very uh, unusual campaign and nothing was nothing was quote-unquote normal however neither one of the candidates uh, running for president mentioned voter suppression and, 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 and voter access or the, the Voting Rights Act being gutted in 2012 so it's encouraging to, to hear like um, it's Right now, we only have Democrats talking. Well, we have our president's campaigning, but um, the only person, only people I'm hearing talking about voting rights, I believe Julian Castro mentioned it. I believe Cory Booker mentioned it as well. A lot of people have made that a focus of their, uh, of their, at least including it in their talking points as they um, traverse the country to talk about, you know, their campaign. So, um, but Julian stuck out because I believe he was the first one on the debate stage to mention uh, voting rights. So um, we need to make sure we talk about voter suppression with that same energy as we talk about other things. Um, let me not talk too much. Uh, the th oh, Wednesday. I want to. I see that we got 15 minutes left. I've never talked this much on this show. Yeah, right. Yes, I have. <laughs> on Wednesday, um, this is this was the highlight of my of my week. It was the highlight, and it was the source of so much, just. Um, so much energy was drained from me, but in a good way. It was a good burnout. Uh, on Friday, um, excuse me, on, on Wednesday, there was a DHEC hearing. If you know me, if you've listened to the show, if you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and on SoundCloud, you know that I've I've covered what's going on um, in Back the Green, near the Citadel, near Burke High School, near the Gaston Green Housing Projects. There's a small creek. What's left of Gaston Creek is over there, four acres of natural wetlands that still is it's a tidal creek that's remaining that it was um that is 
at risk of being developed by a local developers of the West Edge Project, which is nothing but a group of developers trying to cloak themselves in, in charitable um, charitable motives, but we know they have a profit motive. But basically, uh, we were able to get the, the community to voice enough opposition to call for a hearing. DHEC had the hearing. Um, and so both sides, you know, our, our friends, we rally folk, we send out newsletters, we use social media, we spread the word, we talk to the press at length. If you Google me and Gazin Creek, you're going to see me on News 4. No, you're not. Excuse me, I don't do Sinclair stations. You're going to see me on uh, NBC, on Live 5 News. You're going to read about, um, not just me, I'm, I'm not being self-centered, but if you Google Friends of Gazin Creek and you'll see my friend Cyrus, who's leading the charge on this. Shout out Cyrus, who was a guest on, on the Mic'd Up. You're going to you're going to see um, some statements from our friend Josh. Um, you're going to see art uh, and photos from our friend Blake. Um, you know, countless friends of Gaston Creek stepped up and voiced their opposition and we've made a lot of noise. And so it brought out over 100 people to Burke High School on Wednesday. To, and, and I had my friend Tally you know, how many people came to, to voice their opposition with us and how many people came in favor of development and more um, sprawl. And um, 30, over 30 people, about 40 people took to the microphone. It was a long night. And and I was just so encouraged because 33, about three, yeah, 33 people said no to the creek. And about four people were like, no, we want more buildings and concrete and, and one more Jimmy John's. So, um, yep, I'm biased. So, yeah, so that happened. And we're just, the fight is nowhere near over. And the public period is still is still open. So you'll find you can find out more information if you go on uh, either Facebook or Instagram. You can find out more information about how to how you can fight for um, a voice your opposition to the development of Gasden Creek, and you can start um, becoming activated about. Um, advocating for Gaston Creek and, and advocating for its renewal and its, um, you know, this can be, this, this Creek can be restored. And so you'll find out more information on Instagram, Facebook, just put in friends of Gadsden Creek. Um, one more time. This is Mika Gadsden. You're listening to Miked Up on Ohm, a weekly activist radio hour, uh, broadcasting live from workshop, which is located at 1503. King Street, and this is your nonprofit, non-commercial radio station, community radio station. So yeah, so Wednesday was overwhelming. If you again go to social media, you'll get all of the like the highlights, um, and also just make sure you you read the Post and Courier's uh, coverage of that. Um, and, and like I said, if you Google Friends of Gasden Creek and Gasden Creek, you'll see a lot of uh, news coverage on the hearing, and if not the hearing. Uh, the, the, all the work going um, all, both sides you'll see you'll you'll see West you'll read about West Edges um, their perspective and you'll read ours and um, I'll let you make your own choice but um, you know I'm all for like you know saving the last Tidal Creek on the peninsula you know just the last one yeah you know not maybe not every acre needs to be developed how about that all right, so that was my Wednesday. Whew, I'm already tired just going through my list. Um, and I want to kind of circle back to Monday because um, I, I took, you know, I'm known for my hot takes, which are informed opinions, but I'm also known for um, having unpopular opinions about things that people find um, or people find very popular. So um, let me do this. So I'm going to take it back to Monday. We had Cory Brooker in town. Like I mentioned, it was a great town hall. Shout out to his team. 
um, for making him available to the press and also to the people uh, and also taking so many questions from the audience and it felt so free it felt it felt less choreographed than some of the other town halls that have gone on here so I'm gonna uh, queue up and play uh, I mean, remember if you listen earlier in the beginning of the show I said that um, I was encouraged by a question posed by a young audience member his name is Charlie and Charlie was 17 years old and he I'm pulling it up right now and he had a question for um, Senator Booker regarding his ties to Big Pharma I'm not going to get into all of that um, but if you if you are a, a voracious reader or you've been following politics closely there is no doubt that Cory Booker has a connection has a relationship with the big pharmaceutical companies and that does oppose a somewhat of a challenge to those who are advocating for lower um lower drug prices um you know affordable insulin and, and things of that nature so it was great to see uh, a future voter ask a such a pointed and, and important question and so I, I after he asked the question at the mic at the at the town hall i chased him down immediately when it wrapped up and here is his i hope i got it turned down this is uh, his um this is me engaging him as to why he asked that question. Remember, the, the audio is a little distorted, but just bear with me. Um, my question to you is, what prompted you to ask Cory Booker that question, specific question about pharmaceutical and his ties to Big Pharma? Because I know he's got a lot of problems with Big Pharma. He has a horrible record. And I just know from looking at the news that he led the charge. Him and a bunch of other corporate Democrats led the charge against drug reimportation from Canada. Would you qualify, Would you characterize yourself as a um, progressive voter? Yeah, Chris, I would call myself a progressive or populist left, any of those two. May I ask or either your approximate age, if you don't mind disclosing your age? Yeah, I'm 17. And your name, if you don't mind? Charles. Thank you, Charles. Okay, that was my quick 52-second interview with Charles. Shout out to Charles for making himself available. He was there with two with uh, he was there with some other friends. I'm assuming they were all friends, um, and they were just really excited. Again, I love seeing people participate in their local politics and their local government. It's so dope to see young people, 17 years old. At 17, I don't know what I was doing, but I'm sure I wasn't at a town hall. <laughs> I'm sure I wasn't at a political town hall. I was probably watching, I don't know, my so-called life on VHS or something. I don't know, but I was not at a town hall. So shout out to Charlie for asking that question. And I encourage folks to please, please continue to ask these kind of questions. Um, it's not, look, I know it's exciting to see someone you see on C CNN and MSNBC and, and on national TV. I know it's exciting to see these people we see at, on C-SPAN hearings. It's exciting to see them in your own backyard. But don't just get wrapped up in the excitement of their celebrity. Ask them important questions that's going to impact you, even the ones that you care about. Like, like if, if let's say I was really, really, really rooting for Klobuchar. Let's say I was a huge fan of what she did. You know, she's a, 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 a Democrat in a, in a state that was, you know, maybe a little bit trending red. And I was just, let's just say I, I was a big fan of Klobuchar. When she comes here, I have to still ask her about certain things, how she voted on certain issues or how, where she stood on certain issues. I need to ask. I need to hear her. I need to challenge her. S switch the power dynamic. The power dynamic shouldn't be... Um, that you letting them court you like like well not court, they are courting your vote it shouldn't be that oh there's a celebrity up there and, and and i work for them 
we had Black Voters Matter in, in studio uh, a few weeks ago. We had Latasha Brown and Cliff Al Albright and Jazz Johnson in studio, and they talked about the importance of understanding they're working for you. So if they're working for you, just like if you if you if you ever were an employer or if you've ever been through an interview process, you know how it is to be asked specific questions because they want to know that you're the right fit for the job or you want to know if a candidate is the right fit for the job. Approach this campaign season with that same type of perspective. It's really important. And I bring that up as I'm wrapping up the show the last nine minutes because what I what I see is my unpopular opinions is I challenge things like like I say I know when things are choreographed because I worked in politics not because I'm trying to vilify anyone Democrat or anyone conservative here I'm trying to let people understand that this is somewhat of a show right that involves a little bit of production so we need to understand it and enter this and not with these like naive eyes and understand that there are there are different there are different influences at play behind the scenes so it's important for us to ask critical questions it's important for us to remove like this veil of of, of innocence and really get down to the, to the brass tacks and ask about uh, you know ask ask our um challenge our politicians and so i, I was i'm not able to play because i talk so much today i'm very proud of myself for being organized and to write notes down every week. Um, I I um, I'm not gonna be able to play the um, excerpt from the um, the interview where Cory Booker made himself available for about eight minutes um, at the town hall. But what I will say is that one great question posed by Meg Kennard of the Associated Press was, you know, he she she reported earlier that day that Monday that he had planned to uh, visit the Emanuel AME Church in um, you know downtown the site of the Dylan Roof massacre and I anyone who knew, knows me before he even announced that he was going um, I'm a huge opponent of using that church using that church's trauma it's historical trauma the recent trauma of having a white nationalist come and, and um, brutally murder nine innocent people I'm a huge opponent of having that church be used as a backdrop. And I understand I am not a personal member member of that church. However, I am black and I am in Charleston and that is that history does not belong to any one faction. It belongs to the collective. Um, and what I do know is that that church has withstood uh, white supremacy in the past following the Denmark VC uprising when that church was essentially destroyed. It rebuilt itself from then. It rebuilt itself from an earthquake, natural disaster. And it had to rebuild and is still in the process of rebuilding and healing from the Dylan Roof massacre. And just knowing the importance of that church, knowing what led to the inception of that church, knowing what kind of history is held in that very building and in, in, in the institution of its, like, in the, of its memory, almost, if that makes sense. Knowing all that's wrapped up in that church, I think we should deal with it and treat it with so much care, requires so much care. And beyond that, it shouldn't be reduced to a political prop. I hate seeing either the victims of that massacre, those struggling with PTSD, those struggling to, to build their lives back after that attack. I hate seeing them be trotted out every time a high-profile politician comes to Charleston and wants to get a great photo uh, embracing um, embracing someone. I, I, I just think that's the wrong move. And so, unfortunately, what my one of my—not unfortunately, it is what it is— um, Cory Booker did make a make a visit to AME. He did get the, uh, of course, got the express permission of the leadership there. And I, and I never would attack the leadership or the membership there who do not agree with me. Absolutely not. But what I will say as someone who studies this issue and studies how things are done, I really would have loved to see them not forfeit power. 
if you seal the church up, if you hold it so dear and tight and, and protect it, protect it from those who are, whose agenda does not line up with, with that church's ultimate agenda, if you, if you protect that church and its legacy so much, you, you maintain so much political power. And I feel like you forfeit that power when you open up that church to... I don't know the, the 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 most connected people you know. I I just really I really find it an unsavory practice, and I and I I hold the presidential campaign responsible. I do not. I don't want to. Again, I never would attack the leadership at Mother Emanuel. Um, I I really think that these candidates need to do better, and some of those candidates, to their credit, have stayed away for that very reason because it does look opportunistic. It does look like a political ploy, and you don't need to do that. I know we had the shootings in Dayton and in El Paso, and I know that those, well, at least the the El Paso shooting was identified as being being a shooting motivated by white nationalist terror. However, that doesn't give anyone the license to come and exploit our pain. And and I and I'll say this too. Why it particularly rubs me the wrong way is because, like with so many things here, like with the um, the museum that's set to open, the International African American Museum that's set to open, um, like with so many things, whenever they engage black folk here in Charleston, they engage us at only one or two points. Either we're serving and cleaning your house, or serving your food, or or you know pro- uh, providing some sort of domestic service. Or you come to us to talk about our pain of being former descendants of, 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 of the enslaved. Our story does not begin with our pain. Our story does not begin with our oppression. We are more than that. We are more than, the, than just the descendants of the enslaved. Like the letter I, wrote, I read at the ACLU event, John A. Harrison was a, a homeowner. He was a, a, probably a self-sufficient man who was either employed or had his own business. He was probably a father a son undoubtedly he was so much more than a victim of of uh you know um illegal uh, seizure of land and property he was more than a victim of environmental um racism uh, at the hands of charleston's mayors uh you know he was more than that I want to know more about John A. Harrison. I, 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 I'm making it my personal goal to find out as much as I can about him and his family and maybe his descendants because it's important for me to remember him as a fully formed person and I think when we when we court these politicians, when they come down here and they and they want our vote, let's make them work for it. And let's not forfeit our political power by giving in so easily. You know, what would have been great to see from the Booker campaign, from the Biden campaign, who also, um, again, you know, made contact with the with the Emmanuel Amy church body, which is not a problem, which is not a problem. But what I'd love to see these campaigns do is is, is in, um, engage these victims of white nationalist terror off of the grounds of the, of the church, right? Outside of the sanctuary of the church, away from cameras and teleprompters. And I'd love to see them engage them, um, you know, and, and empower them by giving them positions, giving them positions or committees and forming and making them um, official co-chairs and spokespeople. Give them a voice. Build a platform for them. If you really care about their issues, Build a platform. And if you really care about gun violence in the state of South Carolina, I'd urge any presidential candidate to look into the trends of domestic violence murders at the hands of men against women and men with guns against women. That's a great place to start. If you really are passionate about gun violence and fighting against gun violence, you'd look at the, you'd look at that. If you really care about gun violence, you look at these trans women, these black trans women that were being murdered and gunned down in our state. 
if you really care about that. So so that's where that's the challenge I have for any kind of politician, local or national. This is Mika. This is mic'd up on OM. I was like a really awkward dismount. One hell of a week, y'all. But please make sure you make your candidates, you make them work for it. You make them earn your vote. They're going for it. They're, they're applying for a job. You're the, you're the employer. You make sure they earn your vote. Until next time, all my black people stay black. Everybody else, y'all stay free, okay?